here is our scripture from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye, your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Quinn. Church, you may be seated. Thank you, Manny and Reese, too, for leading us today. Uh, please meet me, church, in Matthew, if you've not already, Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 1 through 6. My name's Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. As always, it's good to open up God's Word uh, together. We've been studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, see in the Gospels is that Jesus was really committing, committed rather to shaping the thinking and the, the love and the life, lives of his um, closest followers, the disciples. And so he does this on the Sermon on the Mount. He moves away from the crowd and he sits on this hillside and his disciples gather close to him. And most recently, Jesus has been instructing them about giving and fasting and prayer that we've looked at. And what he's saying is that there's a way of doing these sorts of things that might, from the surface, look good. He says, ultimately, they're benign. Ultimately, they're neither good nor bad. It just really depends about your heart. Uh, giving can be about you or can be about the Lord. Uh, praying can be about you or it can be about the Lord. Fasting can be about you or it can be about the Lord. It just sort of depends. And so Jesus is helping his disciples see beyond the spiritual disciplines, if you will, because what he's really doing is reframing righteousness around the heart. He's helping them and us to understand that we can do a lot of really wonderful religious things and they amount really to nothing because ultimately we've done them for our own glory or we've done them with a disposition uh, of selfishness or what he continues to highlight is hypocrisy. And in Luke chapter 18, actually, Jesus tells this story that I think puts perfect flesh on what we've just navigated uh, up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Two men go to the temple to pray. Uh, one is a Pharisee, part of this elite religious uh, class, and the other is a tax collector, who in the first century was seen to be about the lowest of the low. And so you have two very different and distinct people gathering to pray. And here's what Jesus says. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I give. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see what Jesus is doing in this juxtaposition. See, while the tax collector confesses his lack of righteousness, the Pharisee presumes his righteousness. The tax collector confesses his lack of righteousness, and the Pharisee presumes that he is righteous. Or in the language of the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisee prays and gives and fasts to be seen. To be seen. And the natural course of such a view of himself leads, Jesus says, to divine judgment. Again, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house, that is the tax collector, justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. What's Jesus saying? It's deeply uh, ironic. He says, being judgmental leads to divine judgment. Being judgmental leads to divine judgment. And I know Tupac taught all of us, right? Only God can judge me, right? If you grew up right, you know that. You knew that that's exactly what the great prophet taught, taught us. But it's not entirely true, is it? It's not entirely true that only God can judge me. We deal with judgment all the time from different people in various ways. And in fact, sometimes in some really good ways. See, today, in fact, Jesus will describe three different types of judgment. Three different types of judgment. One will be divine, the other personal, and the third communal. Divine, personal, and communal. And yet they're all connected. You see, knowing that we are and will be ultimately judged by God in the age to come when Jesus returns, it does something to us. It humbles us, right? It keeps us... Uh, healthy in our self-concept and our concept of others, but it also empowers us to judge or rightly evaluate ourselves and others, which in turn then helps us to live with integrity with our brothers and sisters. See, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about judgment, and I want to try to reflect on all three aspects of judgment that Jesus brings up in this text by moving through this text this way. We'll look at the nature of judgment, and then we'll look at the purpose of judgment, and then we'll look at the love of judgment. So we'll look at the nature, the purpose, and then the love. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, shoot, I judge people all the time. I think that's probably the best place to start, Lord. It's so easy. It's so easy, perhaps even this morning, seeing someone on the way over to this gathering or even seeing someone in this gathering and begin to presume or to evaluate or to judge another. This is such a challenge for us that we don't even always know when we're doing it. It becomes so normal. It means to rightly evaluate, to understand, to discern, to judge appropriately so that you would be honored and so that we would be encouraged and equipped for every good work that you have for us as a church family. So would you help us? Would you change us on the spot as we open up your word, which never returns void? So we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably helpful to begin by naming a few preoccupations or preconceptions rather that we have with judgment. See, for most of us, we live in a modern progressive city like Chicago. Judgment, ju judgment in general is incredibly negative. Modern people see judgment uh, as just a purely evil practice that devalues personal autonomy and individuality, right? Don't judge. In fact, many of our friends and neighbors, this is the only verse in the entire Bible that they know right? And they are happy to quote it at us because often the church is the one who we know this passage the least, right? So it's really intriguing. It used to be John 3, 16, right? Now it is Matthew chapter 7, judge not or you'll be judged. But because some of us grew up in religious environments, we are prone to see judgment actually as a positive thing. See, a moral person sees judgment as a necessary discipline that reveals God's holiness and encourages us to live holy lives, right? So modern people, then who esteem love above all else see judgment as the antithesis of tolerance and acceptance. Loving someone means never judging them. But since religious people esteem holiness above all else, they see judgment as the way we hold ourselves and one another accountable. Holiness, we believe, requires judgment. So what, which, which is it? Does judgment reject love or does judgment produce holiness? This is one of the primary reasons we have a really hard time getting along is when it comes down to this, we're coming at this subject very, very differently. Jesus seems, as usual, to come up and communicate this third way. It's 
neither strictly modern nor is it religious, but it's also not this balance of a little bit of both, right? Look at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And he continues on verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Okay, so let's notice this third way. Let's describe it. Jesus doesn't say that judgment, or to be judged, because that, that it's evil. He doesn't say just don't do it. Nor does he say, to tell us that judging uh, one another is just good, so definitely do it. He, it's not good, it's not bad. Rather, he says that don't judge because however you judge someone, that's the way that you're going to be judged. So he says don't judge because it's good, and don't not judge because it's bad. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes about the importance of describing something as opposed to resisting the urge to assign it value immediately. We're very good at this, by the way, just assigning value. Something is either evil or righteous. Someone is either good or they are bad. We have a very hard time just describing a situation or describing a person without assigning moral value to it. See, instead of saying that something is right, wrong, good, or bad, describing its nature, then what happens? It invites us to curiosity. It invites us into discovery. In other words, it suspends judgment. I think that's what Jesus is doing. He says then, he describes judgment as what? It's reciprocal. One of the most instructive stories about the reciprocal nature of judgment is found in 2 Samuel. King David executes a man named Uriah. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. David seduces Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and when she becomes pregnant, David's unrepentant sin leads to more sin, which sort of like a sidebar here, unrepentant sin always leads to more sin. We never cover it up. It never gets put to rest without bringing it into the light. David's story is an incredible cautionary tale to that end. So he kills Uriah, and then God calls the prophet Nathan to go and talk to David about this. And we might say he's delivering divine judgment, but instead of accusing David outright or saying like, hey, I know what you did, right? What does he do? He tells him a story. He tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. Essentially, the rich man takes the poor man's only lamb and sacrifices it rather than taking one of his own, rather the rich man's, one of his many lambs. So he, Nathan brings this story to David as essentially saying, so what do you think, right? And if you're reading this story, you're just like, this is not going to go well for David. Hopefully he repents and confesses. 2 Samuel verse 12, verse 5 and 6 says this, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, that's the rich man, and said to Nathan, as the Lord lived fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, what's happening? Well, David is judging this fictional rich man, right? And it's ironic because it's clear that Nathan's story is about David. If you've been reading 2 Samuel, you know, Nathan is talking about you, dude. How come you cannot see this? It's right in front of you. He's unable to see the folly and the sin in his own life. And so what does he do? He just condemns the man he knows has done something wrong. Again, if you've read the story, then you know Nathan's famous line, as David is so angry at this fictional character, he says, you are that man. You are that man. Do you see? Therefore, instead of death coming to this fictional rich man's house, as David pronounced judgment over him, death comes to David's house. Judgment is reciprocal. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't warning his disciples that all judgment is wrong and that all ju- or that all judgment is right. Rather, he's describing the nature of judgment. 
He's saying the way we judge is the way we'll be judged. Judgment is reciprocal. However you judge someone, you should be prepared to be judged the exact same way. So we shouldn't ask, is it good or is it bad? But rather, how do I want to be judged? Or stated differently, we ought to judge ourselves and others, keeping in mind that God is our ultimate and only judge. Judgment ultimately comes from God. Well, then why would we judge at all? Because many of us go, if God is the only judge, then I don't want any part of this. I'm not trying to make any evaluative statement about anybody. Well, I think what we need to confess is that David's issue is our issue too. Jesus uses this very famous illustration to further our understanding of this deeply human predicament. Look at verse 3, Matthew 7, verse 3. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? So like David... What Jesus is saying is that we all have this uncanny ability to see the speck or the sin or the imperfection or shortcoming in someone else's life while missing the exact same issue in our own life. Am I preaching to you yet? Now, Dr. Tim Keller, I think, points out very wisely that Jesus' comparison is not between sins. He's not saying that people have little sins and you have really big ones that you have to deal with. He's, he's ultimately saying you have the same sin in your eye, but because it's right there, it looks like a log. It is covering your ability to see, right? Anything in my eye looks bigger. Why? Because it's in my eye. See, it's not that one person has something insignificant and you have something big and we have to act like our sins are bigger than somebody else's. See, anything in my eye is, is massive to me. It's a matter of perspective. And so what Jesus is after here is not comparison of sin, but an incongruity of expectations and of standards that we hold on someone else and hold on ourselves. It's a misalignment of the heart. Jesus calls it hypocrisy all the time. They can't see. And yet, instead of getting healthy, they point out the unhealthiness of others. And by the way, I think they know that there's a plank in their eye, and I think you and I do too, right? Though perhaps it might be subconscious. It might be a subconscious awareness. After all, more times than not, isn't it true, church, that we despise in others what we despise in ourselves? Do you know why I despise arrogance? Because I am seriously arrogant. Do you know why I get so frustrated with pastors who are full of themselves? Because I am full of myself. Do you know why I get so frustrated when somebody loves attention and glories on a stage? Because that's exactly what I do. I wish that were not the case. But the reason I'm so frustrated with prideful people is because I am deeply prideful. By God's grace, I'm becoming more humble, but I am deeply prideful. How about you? What is it that you despise in someone else? Because ultimately, you hate that that's a part of your story. You hate that that's a part of your character. 19th century German writer Hermann Hesse observed that if you hate a person, you hate something in him that is a part of yourself. What isn't part of ourselves doesn't disturb us. I mean, in other words, I won't care. If there's no skin in the game for me, if it doesn't reflect something in my character, I just won't really even care. That seems right in line with what Jesus is suggesting, isn't it? The Apostle Paul even echoes the same truth. We looked at it a number of years ago in Romans chapter 2. 
verse 1, it says, Therefore you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. See, we notice specks in others' eyes to distract ourselves and others from the specks that we know are in our own eyes. Nothing to see here. You see what that person did? No, I'm good over here. But did you see what that person did? Can you believe that person and what they think and what they said and how they are raising their children and how they do their work? What's the remedy? Well, I think it's pretty simple. In fact, it's so simple, it's so obvious that we almost never do it. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will be able to see clearly the speck in your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying, before you judge someone else, judge yourself. Judge yourself. Look at yourself first. Before you diagnose someone else's sin, he's saying, start your own path of healing. Start your own path of healing. See, having something in your eye is really unhelpful and damaging. It's not only that you can't see clearly, it's that it's going to hurt. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse if you don't deal with it. But notice, once it's removed, what does Jesus say? You can see clearly. Judging ourselves first, what does it do? It acknowledges and it names the speck in our own lives. It's a practice, ultimately, of getting well, of growing, of maturing, of being humbled. It's a discipline of being authentic and resisting the urge to pretend and to be a hypocrite. That's what that word means. A hypocrite is someone who pretends. By the way, this is why I love and also hate community. It's really harder to pretend. The more you're connected in community, the less you can pretend. And that's really frustrating because pretending can feel safe a lot of the time, right? But if you're sitting down in your small group and you go, I'm totally fine. I don't have that problem. They're like, yo, we've been with you for a couple of years. That is your issue. That's totally your issue, right? It's beautifully frustrating. What a gift to be known. See, that's really what that word judge means. It's a Greek word, uh, the Greek word krino. It means to sift, to split apart. It conveys this idea of evaluation or examination, seeking to determine the nature or substance or goodness of something. And that kind of personal judgment or examination, it keeps you healthy. It keeps you whole. It keeps you on a trajectory of becoming more and more who God has called you to be. Now, this is perhaps one of the most damaging practices of the American church today, isn't it? Instead of a people who confess our sin and are on our own path of healing, taking the specks out of our own eyes collectively and as a community, we far too often act like a people of judgment, happy to point out the sins of everyone else first before we would ever, ever confess that we're our own brokenness. See, we're happy, aren't we, as a whole to decry the sexual dysfunction of a progressive culture? but fail to admit and lament our own addictions to worldly ambition, misogyny, and money and fame? We're ready to point the finger at traditionalists who conflate patriotism and spirituality, but fail to grieve and confess our love of being seen as cool and accepting and comfortable? See, we don't just do this individually. We do it together, don't we? King David was learning this. He's such a great story for us to follow. He was learning to resist the urge to point out the specks in others. First, he he starts learning to allow and invite God's word and spirit to judge his heart, which is really instructive for us. He actually wrote a song. Many of the psalms are. 
And he, he wrote this song, not just to be a personal reflection, but something that we would sing corporately. Why? Because he knew through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we needed to heal as a whole, not just individually. We needed to heal as a people, as a family, not just as individual brothers and sisters. See, what he was learning personally, he is now sharing corporately. And it's fantastically demonstrated in the way, this almost like wrestling match that we all face, that we see David facing. Meet me in Psalm chapter 139. So if you're still in Matthew, flip to the left. Psalm is in the middle of the Bible or just type in Psalm, P-S-A-L-M, 139. David's, David begins this psalm in a really beautiful way. Um, it, perhaps you have sung a song with these lyrics or just appreciate the sentiment. He says, where shall I go from your spirit, right? Shall I go up to the heavens? You're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there. Like that kind of like beautiful, brilliant, like God is everywhere. Do you know what has never been included in a song? Verses 19 through 22. Look at it. Same song, same poem, same chapter. David says this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David wants to kill some more people, right? This is what he is singing about. Can you imagine coming to the gathering and these lyrics being in your worship book? And you raise hands to this apparently. God, would you kill some more people? That would be dope. We praise you. We bless your name. So David's tone obviously shifts a little bit here. From the where can I go from your spirit? Up in the heavens, you're there. Down in the depths, you're there. It shifts, in fact, so much that many Old Testament scholars debate if there are two writers of this song. They think the shift is so severe that King David must have written part of it. And I don't know, some like raging sociopath wrote the other part of it. But do you know why I know that David wrote all of that? Do you know why I know this has one author? Because it's me. I go from your spirit on Sunday and on Monday, I'm like, would you just take these people out? Right? My life would be so much better if everybody would get off the Dan Ryan. They're awful. These people are awful. They're so bad. Or if you would get rid of these people from my neighborhood or from my block, or if I never had to look at this kind of person ever again, right? That's how I know this is one author, is because the songs I sing from Monday through Sunday are very different songs. It's deeply human, isn't it? David shifts again. Instead of taking action on his judgment, what does he do? He does this desire that he has for his enemies. He does something deeply instructive and I think completely in line with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7. Look at verse 23 in Psalm 139. In this crazy amalgamation of all these emotions and thoughts and judgments, what does he say in verse 23? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, what? Judge me. Discern the truth in my heart. He's inviting the Lord to sift through the dark crevices of his soul, through the intentions of his heart, underneath the foundation of his thoughts. He's asking God to show him something he cannot see on his own. He's saying, show me the specks in my eye because I see a lot of specks all around me. But would you show me what's going on in me first? 
but not for his condemnation. Notice, for his healing, lead me in a path everlasting. He's not saying point out the speck so that I'll be crushed. Point out the speck so I'll be whole, so that I'll be restored, so that I'll be righteous. Here's the point. If judgment is reciprocal, isn't this the way that you want to be judged? With integrity, with health, with humility. You see, contrary to our broad generalization and concept perceptions, this kind of judgment is actually deeply loving. Deeply loving. See, the nature of judgment is reciprocal, and the purpose of judgment is being, being healed, which leads us to this great love that we give and we receive in judgment. Perhaps the most unsettling detail in Jesus' instructions in Matthew 7 is that we still have a responsibility to the speck in our brother's eye. Don't you hate that? <laughs> right? I think many of us really do. It would be like, it would just be dope if I'm on my path to healing. Y'all need to catch up. Right? Look again in Matthew chapter 7. So if you're still in Psalm 39, flip back over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. He says, You hypocrite, first take the speck out of your own eye, and then you will, clear, you, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, hypocrisy is not uh, about helping a brother with his sin. Hypocrisy is refusing to admit that you're a sinner too. Hypocrisy is not trying to help your sister. It's not trying to point out a shortcoming. That's not hypocrisy. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's doing that without a deep admission of your own brokenness. See, the religious person often neglects taking the speck out of their own eye and instead wants to focus on someone else's problems. We skip to judgment. We know that judgment is healing, but we don't think that it's reciprocal. We think judging is good. And while modern people often deal with their own specks, they just as often ignore the speck in someone else's eye saying, that's not my business. That's not my problem. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to be judgy or judgmental. We think judging is bad because we know that judgment is reciprocal, but we wonder if it's actually helpful in healing and loving. You see, this is Jesus' third way. Because God is ultimately our judge, there's that cosmic or divine judgment. We examine ourselves first personally, not just as an end of itself so that I get healing and growth and help and holiness and righteousness, but so that I can better help my brothers and sisters. That's the communal aspect. You see all three aspects of judgment being present in this particular text. Now, Jesus understood 2,000 years ago that there needed to be boundaries with this. Don't you love it? We millennials think we came up with boundaries. Jesus talked about them 2,000 years ago. To be sure, see, our examination of others has limits. It has limits. I should not pry someone's life open to say, listen, I'm trying to live a holy life. You do too, right? So here's all of the junk I'm noticing in your life. We shouldn't be moral police or morality police. We shouldn't consistently seek the faults of others if they haven't invited us in. Nor should we constantly try to help someone with the specks in their life if they don't want to listen or they are not listening to us. This is where Jesus ends. Notice how Jesus concludes this passage in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, this passage is deeply challenging to interpret and understand, and from someone far more intellectual 
able than I am in their New Testament scholarship will be able to do it. So the simplest reading that I can understand of what's going on here, it seems like a complete left turn from what Jesus has been talking about. But I think the most natural thing is that there's a comparing and contrasting of this principle that we've previously looked at. You see, while we should help others who have sinned in their lives, there are some who will not respond favorably to our observations and our desire to care for their life, right? We all have stories like this. And, and I think this is especially important when learning. One of the things my counselor has really helped me to understand is the difference between causing a wound and touching one. The difference between causing a wound. Sometimes we get close enough to our brothers and sisters where we touch something that really hurts, but we didn't cause it but their reaction might feel like we did. So Jesus is talking about a pretty vicious response from people to something that maybe we have the best intentions, the most humble approach. We've gone through the steps and they may even say some harm, harmful and hurtful things to us. But that is, but it's not the case. What does Jesus say? It seems that he's especially thinking about the gospel in this case. See, the message that is truly holy and this pearl of great price as it's elsewhere, other, uh, elsewhere described. See, that the gospel ultimately, isn't the gospel really the story about God pointing out the cosmic speck in your life? The cosmic speck in your eye and in mine. That makes Jesus our brother who sees the speck of sin in our lives, disabling us from being able to see him and see the world and the truth and beauty that he has created. And instead of simply judging us, what does he do? Instead of just condemning us because of the speck in our eye, instead of disregarding us and judging us, this brilliant twist and turn of the gospel is that he took the judgment for us. See, judgment was still reciprocal, but Jesus steps in the gap. He's called the propitiation for our sin, not because wrath of God went away, but because he bore the wrath for us. See, the cross then is this place where the love of divine judgment and the healing of divine judgment are put on full display. The cross means the speck in your eye will not crush and kill you because the one who had no specks in his eye took your judgment for you. The one who had no shadow or brokenness or ailment, the one who was truly whole and truly already completely at shalom and peace took the reciprocal judgment that you and I deserved. See, on the cross, Jesus allows himself to be judged as guilty, even though he had no fault, no sin, and no speck. This should change the way that you and I look at ourselves and each other. We should be gentle towards ourselves, but we should also speak truth and allow him to wash us clean of a guilty conscience, to admit the specks in our eyes. But we should also, for the sake of his holiness and the good of our friends and neighbors, say, there's something in your life I really think you need to consider more. But you see, the, the cross is meant to not only animate those steps, but to humble us as we do it. There should be nobody arrogant at the cross. Nobody thinks that they have no speck at the cross. The cross reveals all of these things, but it also heals all of these things. And so may we be a people who understand the brilliance and beauty of the judgment of God and to not become judgmental, but to truly be people who take care of the specks of our own eyes so we can walk with health and see healing of others happen too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It's encouraging, but it's also unsettling. Because we know that we have fallen short, we can be really judgmental, individually and as a people, which causes real harm and hurt. 
And so help us to be a people who receive your judgment, knowing that your son ultimately has received it for us so that we can rightly discern the places in our lives that do not reflect your character, your goodness, your grace, and the fruit of your spirit. So that we can also look at our brothers and sisters and take good care of each other. Oh God, would you protect us from the air of not speaking truth to our sisters and brothers out of fear? And would you also protect us from being so overly critical that it puffs us up in arrogance and hypocrisy? Would you help us to embrace this third way of Jesus, of humility, of healing, of joy and of peace, of integrity, so that ultimately you would be glorified and your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.